Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Uh, my name is Daisy Cunningham. I'm the college archivist. And this is the first in our series of events coming up. Um, if you'd like to know more about the events that we have, we have a mailing list you can sign up to outside, and there's a program of events as well. Um, the next one is on 19th of October, and that will have four speakers giving really short talks about a range of subjects, including syphilis, uh, disability, and mental health. That is a free event, and there will be uh, free alcohol and nibbles. So I'm not implying that you're the sort of people who would come to an event just because there were free things to be had, but do bear that in mind. So, on to this event. Our speaker tonight is Sophie Goggins. Sophie graduated from the University of St. Andrews in 2013 with a degree in zoology. She then spent two years on a graduate development program with the Wellcome Trust, and she became curator of biomedical science at the National Museum of Scotland at just 26 years old. Not that I'm horrendously jealous of that or anything. Um, and she's responsible there for some of the most um, interesting collections at the museum, including Dolly the Sheep. Um, and she has a range of research interests, which sort of coalesce nicely in the talk today. It's combining prosthetics with the history of collecting and curating collections and the patient's experience of medicine. So please welcome Sophie Goggins. Great. Thank you so much, Daisy. Hi, everyone. That was a fantastic introduction, of course. Um, so my title is the Curator of Biomedical Science, which really is just a very long way of saying that I'm responsible for the entirety of the medical collection at National Museum Scotland, but with a focus primarily on contemporary material, which is something that people might find a wee bit different than what they're used to seeing in museums. Today, what I'm going to be speaking about is uh, prosthetics from maker to user. So I'll be talking a little bit about why I've been interested in this from a research point of view, then also uh, some patient stories and the history of prosthetics in Edinburgh and what's happening with personalization in the future. So I really hope that all of you do know this building and have been. Uh, this is going to be your one and only pass. If you have not been, please do. <laughs> We're just up the hill. We're free. Uh, we're the largest visitor attraction outside of London with two and a half million visitors a year. And we see uh, our building spans the a very num numerous number of topics. Uh, so from world cultures to natural sciences, uh, science and technology and Scottish history and archeology, span we pretty much cover it all under one roof. Which made our new galleries, which opened in 2016, a wee bit of a challenge. So uh, there are six new science and technology galleries there were also new art and design galleries, if that's your thing, we will forgive you. Uh, but the science and technology galleries, I might be biased, but are very good. Uh, and they're themed. So instead of what you might be used to in another museum, instead of being around topics like medicine, they're themed around topics like technology by design, which looks at engineering problems, um, or inquire, which looks at the spirit of scientific inquiry. So the previous galleries in this space were on the top floor, 
was called Shaping Our World and opened in 2011. It was text rich, which allowed us to have four stories on display. One described the technical challenges of designing and making a successful prosthetic limb, whilst the other three focused on thalidomide's impact, the Edinburgh design work, and the Campbell Aird MS. David Gao helped us and reviewed the gallery text. Now I want to direct your attention to, on the screen, there's a kind of cutoff picture. Oh, I'm going to try the laser. Oh, there we go. Of a little boy there. Uh, so when we uh, created the new galleries, um, we told the story of thalidomide for more of a technical aspect. So about creating the prosthetics to solve a problem, a medical problem, which for those of you who are familiar is more of a medical model of disability. So look, focusing at a medical fix to a problem. One day someone came in and got in touch and said that they had been told that there was a photograph of them on the wall in the gallery. And that was Alan Shannon, who was the little boy who was on display quite literally on our wall. Um, representing children of thalidomide in Edinburgh and also designer prosthetic limbs. Now, he wasn't mad that his photograph had been used, but he did want to let us know that his experience of prosthetics was very different than what was necessarily on display. And that while he really uh, respected the work that had gone on, prosthetics were not for him and that it wasn't all rosy. So shaping our world resulted in a far richer understanding of the user experienced by serendipity. So Alan told us more about what the prosthetic designers had been attempting to do from his point of view as a user, but also why Alan had stopped wearing his limbs. So since then, we have been able to incorporate uh, his narrative and uh, many others into the most recent designs in our galleries. So the technology by design, ooh, I should say actually, so Alan also was able to introduce us to other members of his community. So this is Yvonne, one of the other uh, users of prosthetics which were on display in our galleries. Um, so the technology by design gallery overall is geared towards technological solutions to problems, as I said, from computing and sewing machines to bridges and bicycles. The engineering human section, which prosthetics is included in, includes four tall arched cases which highlight mobility aids, devices that aid vision, upper limb prosthetics, lower limb prosthetics, artificial hips, and adjacent displays exhibit wheelchairs and upright mobility. And they're supplemented with a touch table, which is called the body shop, which allows visitors to touch implants. Now, my claim to fame is a, uh, any of the other achievements are far paled in comparison to the fact that on this touch table in our new galleries, you can feel a prosthetic testicle as a representation of uh, cosmetic prosthetics, which I also think are a very important thing to have on display. So, but the theme of technology by design when applied to medical technology would be, is fir placed firmly within the model of medical disability as opposed to social disability where society is the disabling factor. However, we reframed this element by focusing less on the fixing of a problem and instead on the ongoing evolution of prosthetics and the influence of users on the design. As a result, the display of prosthetics highlights the impact in particular moments in the evolution of design for different users. So today I'm hoping to use the same strategy to talk about the history of some Scottish engineering heroes in the field of prosthetics and highlight some of the unsung heroes in this field, the users of the technology. At the end of the presentation, I'll be highlighting a new acquisition for us as well. 
Professor David Simpson, was a medical physicist who was born in Edinburgh in 1920. He started designing equipment which monitored transplant patients' condition during surgery at the Royal Infirmary and the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. He went on to design the first successful fetal heart rate monitor, which in terms of a CV is pretty good. At about this time in his career, uh, in the early 1950s, uh, a German pharmaceutical company was looking to expand into new drugs. The company developed a drug which had the side effect of making patients relaxed and inducing sleep. The drug then went to market under the name of Distaval. Advertisements for Distaval, like this one, exalted its non-toxic nature, and it was targeted not only at the young, but also pregnant women to treat morning sickness. Distaval is, of course, for all of you who are familiar with Call the Midwife or any kind of medical history, is the brand name for thalidomide. When taken in the first three months of pregnancy, thalidomide is responsible for a range of disabilities, most commonly the absence, the absence or shortening of limbs, and the malformation of hands and feet. So this advertisement ran in the BMJ in 1960, and the drug was formally withdrawn in the United Kingdom in 1961, just a year later. So it was due to this tragedy and under immense media attention that David Simpson became the director of the Powered Prosthetics Unit in Edinburgh at the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital. His, his task was to design prosthetics which could be used by children affected by thalidomide, in particular um, a focus on upper limb prosthetics. The unit began designing in a workshop basement in George Square, close by to the Royal Infirmary, but moved in 1965 to this site, the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital, to be closer to the children they were working with. By the end of 1965, the unit was serving 60 children from across Scotland and Northern Ireland. Designing prosthetics is a difficult enough engineering problem, but designing prosthetic solutions for children adds another layer of complexity. The prosthetics didn't just need to function, they needed to be intuitive, and because they were small children, and for any of you that have small children in your life, they needed to be very robust. Simpson and his colleagues began to design gas-powered limbs for children in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Their main aim was to make the limbs user-controlled, which allowed the children to use the prosthetics without any aid. The example on the right was the final version of the Simpson Series 1 arm, created in 1965. The arm was self-leveling, which meant that it would be possible to lift a spoon with liquid to your mouth without spilling, important for users to be able to feed themselves. Interestingly, Simpson's work was unpatented, and thus it was free for any hospital in the world to use. Simpson and his colleagues began to fit these extraordinary arms, which were CO2-powered. At the time, it was marveled that these gas canisters were no longer than a candle and weighed only roughly half a pound. Now, I just want you to take a moment and look at the Allen on the left-hand side. So a gas canister, only half a pound, but for a child that small. But this was only series one. One of Simpson's main strategies was that when a new design and prototype was complete and had gone through laboratory testing, it was immediately fitted to children to use and test. One of these children was Alan, who you met earlier. Born in Glasgow without upper limbs and with small lower limbs, Alan visited the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital multiple times a year, and the experience formed a large proportion of his childhood. In his own words, when the arms were being made and fitted around us like a made-to-measure suit, we would have to spend any time away from our families, where we would spend anything from three to six weeks on our own in the self-care unit. These younger users in the self-care unit would be there for at least a month to learn to use their new prosthetics. And after the first fitting, it sometimes was slightly shorter, 
but often with the new prosthetic, users would be there weeks spending hours moving objects like bricks to get the hang of movement. The next series of Simpson arms, the series two, were produced later in the 1960s and included a shoulder joint which allowed for more control of the arm. The final version of these can be seen on the right. As the children got older, there were new challenges and perks to Simpson's work. In the Scottish Daily Express in 1964, Simpson said, the children are getting older and communicating better, and our work, therefore, is improving. The children have three terribly fundamental needs to carry out on their own, to eat, to write, and to go to the lavatory. This became even more important as child users of these prosthetics reached school age, and there were discussions and even arguments within the Scottish government about their access to education. Allowing young users to eat right and make sure they could use the bathroom on their own silenced a lot of arguments which were being used at the time that these children would be taking up resources within school buildings and ensured their ability to attend general education in Scotland. One of these children, Avon, is seen on the left. Avon was born without arms and had her first set of prosthetics fitted at the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital at around the age of two. While the arms allowed her to do those three fundamental needs Simpson talked about, in Yvonne's own words, I was first introduced to using my artificial arms at a very young age, about two years old. The arms were worked by using CO2 canisters. My recollections are the hours spent practicing to do the simple tasks of lifting bricks to eating and drinking. I could feed myself and write with them, but my first instinct was to use my feet. Approaching my teenage years, the arms made me look normal, but were heavy and cumbersome for my small frame. I needed help with dressing when wearing them, but without them, I could manage independently, an important factor for a teenager. So a point to make as well, I'll just go back when I should have, that what you might notice from one of the arms is one of them is functional, it's the one on the left, and the other one is purely cosmetic. So it's to fill out clothing and to make uh, other members of the community feel more comfortable. Alan and Yvonne both chose to project prosthetics when they reached their teenage years. Alan cited the complex weight and design of the arms, which he compared to a rucksack, and when the arms ran out of gas, they would drop to his side. So Alan told us a very nice story of um, what he's sitting in right there is a converted uh, bumper car that his dad converted so Alan could get around, and he used to drive it using his prosthetic arms, but one day the gas canisters ran out, and when they did, his arms would just fall to his side. Uh, so that happened one time. It's how he knocked out his two front teeth. <laughs> um, for Yvonne, it was all about independence. By 18, Yvonne had stopped wearing prosthetics entirely and solely used her feet for tasks, which she continues to do today. Ooh, actually, I have to go back. It was important for us to tell their stories and choice not to wear prosthetics in our new galleries. Yvonne and Alan were kind enough to share their experience and photographs for our digital screens, which you can see here where you can read their story in their own words with photographs that they chose. As you can see from Alan's comment uh, on the snapshot, Alan thought the prosthetics were a wonderful idea, but in the end, they weren't just for him. We were lucky enough to hold a large number of the work that Simpson created, both on display in the museum and at our National Museum's Collection Center at Granton, where they are kept in the permanent national collection. Some prototypes of Simpson's work had remained with his family, and were donated for use by his son, Alan D.C. Simpson, who was a former curator in the museum. 
Uh, Alan Simpson also facilitated the acquisition of a collection that was held by the NHS. In all, we have 146 hands, arms, and significant parts uh, from Simpson's work. As these had formed the Maker's Research and Heritage Collection, they were pre-selected for survival on the basis of their design interest, as opposed to their personal interest. Alan and Yvonne's stories and experience added the context, which makes our objects relatable to our visitors. As the needs of patients like Yvonne and Alan changed, the powered prosthetics unit at the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital went on to become the Rehabilitation Engineering Service, and still later, the Southeast Mobility and Rehabilitation Technology Center, or the SMART Center, which is a slightly better acronym. Engineer David Gao became the director in 1993 and sought to address some of the issues which led users, like Alan and Yvonne, to abandon their prosthetics altogether. At the time, many commercial components were incompatible with one another, and he hoped that a modular prosthetic system would address the need for power partial hands for both children and adults. Gao recognized that the pneumatic or gas-powered design was inconvenient and cumbersome with limitations in functionality. Gao wanted to create a modular or swappable system that could be used for both right and left arms and in all ages. This modular system also hoped to address the need for partial hand prosthetics for children and adults. At the time, most partial prosthetics could only be fitted to children older than nine, and often they were found to be oversized. David Gao's first decision uh, as manager was to cease work on the gas-powered arms, which were used by Alan and Yvonne, which had become unpopular with users due to a high level of maintenance and a lack of functionality. When Simpson began his work, electric batteries and motors were just too bulky and heavy to be used. Pneumatic or gas-powered arms, were, whilst heavy, were still the best option. Gao's task was to create a prosthetic which was lighter, using electric technology, which was more user-friendly. In 1998, the, the Edinburgh Modular Arm System, or EMAS, known colloquially as the world's first bionic arm, was fitted at the Princess Margaret Rose Hospital. This arm was the first to have an electrically powered shoulder, elbow, wrist, and fingers, and was controlled by electronic microsensors. Weighing only 1.8 kilograms, which is lighter than a natural adult arm, they were much less cumbersome of the 1960s prosthetics and their accompanying gas canister backpacks. The MS arm was fitted with much fanfare to Kimball Aird, who was an Edinburgh hotelier who had lost his arm to cancer. Aird was featured in the Guinness Book of World Records as the man with the most successful false arm. Uh, Aird worked with Gao and his team, fed back on the use of design, and was not just a user, but also a co-author on a number of papers with Gao. He acted as part of the research as opposed to being the focus of the research. However, when the trial of the MS was over, Gao had to give the limb back and return to using a much less high-tech prosthetic. This change also meant he had to give up flying, something which he had began taking lessons in. Um, of course, there were problems with the arm, which, and the research and work that he did helped to create later versions. For instance, he tells a very nice story uh, of using the arms at the Guile Shopping Center, and he reached above his head to grab something off a shelf, and the arm jammed. He was just stuck <laughs> up there. But it was that kind of feedback and use in the real world that helped David Gao and his team to create later versions of their limbs. Uh, Campbell Aird was also very nice, I would say, for having the arm taken off him. 
His, he was quoted in a Scotsman interview saying, I was never promised the arm. I was the pioneer, and I had it for a time. But the test pilot for Concorde didn't end up with a Concorde, and that's fine by me. After the success of the MS arm, David Gao was keen to build on the research and produce a limb that could be commercially available, modular, electric, and intuitive. Keeping the modular structure so successful in the MS arm, David Gao and his team embarked upon their new task. In 2002, David Gao founded Touch EMS, or Touch MS, the first NHS spin-out company, which went on to become Touch Bionics. It was, and still is, based in Livingston. Five years later, the ILM was launched and was the first prosthetic to have individually powered moving fingers. Previously, most prosthetics had relied on a hook or simple grasp, which, while not visual, visually appealing, was very effective at performing everyday tasks. The articulating fingers allow the ILM to have a range of grips, which can be used in everyday life, as opposed to that open and closed mechanism I spoke about earlier. This allowed users to be able to do things which had been previously impossible, such as just use the index or pointer finger to be able to use the computer or telephone. The control and feedback within the ILM also allowed for patients to pick up flexible cups, for instance, made out of styrofoam or plastic, full of water without crushing them. And also for some of the users in the initial trials, something which was fed back, which was very important to them, was being able to give a realistic handshake. The ILM is allows users to be able to do, give a realistic handshake, producing pressure to the point of light squeezing and then releasing the recipient's hand. The ILM was a flagship object for the National Museum of Scotland capital redevelopment in 2012, which opened in 2016. The museum's curators had been following the progress of the powered prosthetics unit and its successors. In 2008, we borrowed a first-generation ILM, as it was then branded, for the permanent gallery Scotland a Changing Nation to feature in the display showing the strength and range of current scientific and technological innovation in Scotland. At the time, Touch Bionics were not ready to donate one of their few demonstration models to the museum, but we are very persistent, and they did eventually transfer one to the National Collection and remain keen to provide one of their latest model for display. You can try out a new version of the ILM uh, and the way it is controlled now, which is via an app that is on the user's phone, on display on our gallery in technology by design. As part of our new galleries, there are also spaces called update zones. These update zones are hoping to highlight new technology in, uh, throughout science and technology, but right now I'm being greedy and we're focusing on medicine. So the purpose of them is to highlight this new technology and so that the museum is a place for our visitors to find up-to-date information and objects. Upcoming update zones feature work by the talented artist and designer Sofia de Oliveira Barada. Sophie runs the Alternative Limb Project, which is based in London. Sophie was trained uh, at an art school and created prosthetics for film and TV, and then worked at the largest prosthetic provider in the UK, creating realistic bespoke prosthetics. She began to make a little bit funkier versions in her spare time after a child user who she saw very often as she grew uh, came in for an appointment and asked Sophie if she would create a prosthetic leg for her that had a pocket for her colored pencils. She figured if she had to wear it that she'd rather it was useful. Uh, she also wanted it to be purple, not skin colored like she'd been uh, prescribed. So Sophie started doing these works 
on top of the other work she was doing and eventually created a spin-out company, The Alternative Limb Project. So all of Sophie's work is done in collaboration with her clients and is seen as an artistic process between the two of them or a narrative. Her limbs have been both functional and purely aesthetic. The limb which we worked with Sophie on was for model Kelly Knox, uh, who won Britain's Next Top Missing model, and she's also a body positivity activist. Kelly rejects prosthetics in her everyday life, but enjoys wearing them as fashion pieces and to explore different facets of her personality. Kelly was inspired by both nature and vines and the extraterrestrial. And in Kelly's own words, I want to change the way society perceives disability. Showing disability can be cool, fashionable, beautiful, and powerful. It's like my body is a canvas, and when wearing an alternative limb, I become art. The vine arm will be going on display at National Museum Scotland uh, in the coming months. It's a botanical tentacle and a floral flora-fauna hybrid and explores the extraterrestrial elements, which I spoke about with Kelly Knox is uh, interested in, through a physical reactive extension of herself. Inspired by plants from this planet, we created, um, Sophie and her team created botanical armor for the surface of the arm, and an alien structure lies beneath. Sophie worked with robotic uh, technology to be able to create six individually curling vertebrae, which allow the arm to move subtly and organically as it curves and curls around objects. So it can pick up objects, but also just move around. Kelly controls the arm by using four degrees of freedom within um, her big toes. So the shoes that she's wearing are not just decorative, they've got a sensor in them about the size of a two pence coin. And she, by pressing on those, she allows the arm to move sideways and also curl and move up and down. There's a video on our website if you Google National Museum of Scotland, The Vine. Um, and there's also a very nice video of Kelly modeling it and moving it around. Okay. So, in our work like this, we are supporting, um, work like this which we are doing and my research which we are supporting at the museum works to redress the balance between clinician and user voices. In the past, museums have focused almost solely on clinician voices, erasing the patient or user's voice. This is something as a museum we are trying to do more of, as our visitors are not just interested, but possibly more so in the personal stories of users than opposed to the engineering background of an object. As a curator, I have found these personal stories of great use and the stories of collaboration much more powerful than the use of one interpretive approach on its own. So in these projects, what we're doing at the museum is not looking to erase the voice of the clinician or the engineer, but to redress that balance and to be able to give equal weight to user and patient voices. And if you are interested in coming to see uh, our galleries, um, it's all the ones with the planes hanging from the ceiling, which makes it quite easy to spot if you enter the building. Uh, but what the prosthetics I talked about today are found on the second floor in this gallery, Technology by Design. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.org.
www.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.